Hello and welcome back. I'm your host, Ruve, and we've got a great guest today, uh, Andre from Optic. Welcome to the show. Hey, Ron. Hey, so, guys. You know, one of the things we were talking about before the show started, and, and you know, we need to record like the the pre-show show because uh, sometimes the, the pre-show is uh, actually equally or more interesting than the actual show itself. But one of the things that we were quickly describing is, you know, I've been pretty passionate in regards to sort of AI generated art over the last several months, both from, you know, just, I just enjoy sort of playing with it and seeing what I can, what I can output. And every, every week, every day, almost, it seems like there's these leaps and bounds in terms of quality and so on. So part of the discussion today is going to be around that. But before we get into that part of the discussion, which I'm pretty excited to dig into, you know, your, your company looks really interesting in, in sort of an adjacent area that sort of looks at, I think, the ability for companies to sort of say, is this NFT authentic? Is that the general sort of pitch? Like what, what's Optic in a, in a kind of nutshell? Yeah, uh, well, in a nutshell, we are an AI infrastructure company for Web3, right? We started with the simple thesis, which is, hey, look, Web3 is potentially many things and potentially it's the next big creator economy. And creator economies require a lot of sophisticated AI systems from our past experience. Things like recommendation systems, content identification systems, um, trusted safety, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, we, me and my co-founders thought that, you know, there's certainly space for some sophisticated AI infrastructure in Web3 space. And that's how Optic got started. The first problem that we identified and we focused on uh, is the problem of NFT authenticity, right? And and that, if you remember a year ago when, you know, we were like in the bull market and, uh, and NFTs were like minted every day, new collections coming in, uh, there was a lot of fraud. And I remember there was this tweet that caught my attention a while back uh, from OpenSea actually, where they said something like 80% of all lazy minted NFTs on, on the site on OpenSea used to be copy mints. Mm -hmm. And that was just, just blew my mind. You know, the, the whole the whole naive value proposition of NFT for someone, and, and that was the first you know mass market use case arguably for Web3, right? NFTs. And, and this simple naive understanding of what NFT is was, well, look, this is a digital art that uh, is unique and scarce and only I own it. And if I own it, nobody else has it. Unlike any other file on the internet, and then turns out that technological reality was such that um, there is no way to check or enforce the uniqueness or scarcity of, of those uh, digital assets. Um, so that was the first problem that we as a company identified and we realized that AI is a great way to solve it uh, at scale and we built a product around it. So Optic is a content identification system for Web3 digital items uh, using like sophisticated proprietary AI infrastructure that we've built. Interesting. So you're taking more of like a sort of ML visual sort of approach to say, you know, is this is this authentic? Is this the originator of the the content? You know, one of the things that I, I've done, you know, in terms of, to address that is, you know, we've created 
a prolific amount of NFTs at a war pool. We've, I think we're at about a million. So the, what I've done, there's, there's two approaches to it that I think that, that work for me. One is the metadata. The problem with the metadata, you know, you, I can do a, a hash value that's stored in the JSON and put it on there. You know, that can be bypassed because the image could literally be right-clicked and saved to your hard drive, right? So the, right. Meta, the metadata only gets you so far. So the, the, the other approach that, that seems to work for me is the, the concept of least significant bits or LB, LSB, I think it's sometimes referred to. And if, when you look at like images, there's this opportunity to embed metadata directly into the image data itself in a way that isn't actually seen by the end user. So when, when I do, so just as a test, I did that a while back. And, and what that allowed me to do is basically sort of encrypt the, you know, a sort of unique identifier of the original creation of the content. And I put that directly in, in the visual metadata of the image, be it a uh, you know, JPEG or PNG or whatever. And, that, right. and then if someone right clicks it and decides to remint it, that provides me the ability to actually sort of indicate that I was the original creator of it because you know, they're not clearing that metadata because it's just being copied over and over again. Now, back to your solution, you're sort of going to the, po the, the, the solution that says, most people have no idea how to do L uh, LSB and they're just right-clicking an image and saving it and reminting it. And you're addressing yeah. that sort of part of the problem. But, you know, is that just half the problem or like, why not start at the source and embed that data in, in the first place? Oh, you can embed it, of course. Like what, what you're talking about is a way to create some sort of some approach to digital f fingerprinting that would enable you as an author to later argue that you were the original creator. Uh, it is an important uh, thing to be able to prove, but it's not really the biggest source of pain in the ecosystem right now. I mean, if it comes to the point where you and another guy, like you and me are arguing who was the original creator of this piece of art, I mean, we've gone pretty far. The vast yeah. majority of sc scam happening way, way earlier than this. You know, the, the reality of the matter is that NFTs promised uh, scarcity in otherwise abundant world of digital abundance. Mm -hmm. Internet is digital abundance. Everything's copyable. You know, information is not scarce. Great. Um, JPEGs are cheap. Uh, now, suddenly, here's a technology that can say, look, this unique digital item is yours or it's a limited edition and there are like that many copies of it. And that's it. Those who own it, they own it. Otherwise, you know, it's not yours. Um, and it turns out humans as, as, as we are are wired to very well understand the concept of ownership, scarcity, collect, collecting things and so forth. And so we uh, attribute value to something that is scarce, uh, way more value than to something that is abundant. Um, now, the moment that happens, those people who look, let's say, at listings on OpenSea, of course, some of us are sophisticated collectors or we are crypto technologists. Um, and when we look at listing on OpenSea, what we really see is the contract ID uh, and, and we go to either span and we look if there is a source code and so on and so forth. Now, guess what? NFTs is the first sort of mass market use case for crypto, uh, which invited a lot of people who have no clue that it's about contracts and tokens. What they see is this digital item that looks like a picture, that looks like a, an ape image, or that looks like something 
beautifully generated, uh, uh, animated, and so forth. Uh, and this is how those, those people assess if they're looking at board eight or something else. They just assess it visually. And that's what creates this opportunity for millions and millions, like literally millions of fake items uh, reminted and recreated every day. Because what they do, they do this thing that, uh, let's say, creators of fake IDs, like you know, driver licenses, do. They create a, a little piece of imagery with some metadata on it that looks like a real thing, but it's just not backed up by a DMV record on the back end, right? <laughs> Similarly, like uh, 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 scammers create like a fake version of board ape or your art, uh, and it might have uh, fingerprints embedded in it or not. It doesn't really matter because uh, the person who will be assessing it, uh, the buyer, potential buyer who will fall for the scam, is not sophisticated enough to pay attention to those things. Uh, and, uh, and that, if we want crypto to go truly mainstream and millions and millions of people to start using it this way, that's what we should be designing for. We should be designing infrastructure that is foolproof um, and make, makes it hard for people to fall for the scam. And so yeah. that is what Optic is trying to solve, this top level problem, like not going as deep as you described. Yeah, and, and and here's the fundamental problem that I see with NFTs, you know, over the last, actually over the last probably six months. Now, with the rise of, of some of these, you know, things like stable diffusion and other sort of AI-driven image generation systems, anyone essentially can be an artist, regardless of their talent. You know, if you can write the right prompt, you can, you can output pretty much in a pretty amazing picture. So almost all the NFT projects that I've seen over the last, you know, literally month or so, have literally all used stable diffusion, and so the, now that we're we're facing this kind of dilemma, of you know, as you point out, what's the true value of an NFT? Is is it is it speculative? Is it you know subjective to the quality of the art? Is it is it some utility of the NFT that unlocks in some other secondary you know component, like it gives me access to a party or something? Or is it is you know? So I think a lot of the the fundamental questions really is coming up now that anyone essentially can create any art of any quality and good quality for that matter. You know, I think we have to move beyond the sort of superficial parts of the actual sort of visual component of the NFT. Yes, it's visual. Yes, it's a cool picture of an angry ape or whatever it happens to be. But in, I, think it, I think the real value of these NFTs can't just be purely speculative. Uh, maybe they can, can be, but I, I just don't know if that's uh, a sustainable business or, it, you know, you know, model for, for our, our industry. So along those lines, the reason I've been sort of pushing for things like, you know, the LSB and other sort of fingerprinting technology is th the second problem that we're facing in the NFT problem you know, area is relating to things like OpenSea and how that's become a kind of primary source for training these AI systems, like people are going to mm -hmm. open, are going to OpenSea and training their AI by just basically scraping the most popular NFT projects and training their algos to output similar things. And right. what what we really need to do, you in particular, given you're the CEO of a company that kind of in the space, I think we collectively need a, a a method agreement, a system that says that if a certain fingerprint is detected in the metadata of the image. You can't use it to train your freaking AI, right? Like yeah, it's yeah. 
you know, at the very least, like I, I as an actual artist, I don't want people stealing my stuff and then just, you know, making their own replicated versions and selling it on, on uh, NFT of it, right? Exactly. Um, I think you're touching on something very important, very fundamentally important for the uh, foreseeable future of um, digital art, NFTs, and, and beyond, actually. Uh, and that is generative AI and copyright issues around it. Uh, there is no, uh, there is no uh, kind of well agreed upon point of view on this yet. There are several, several big lawsuits happening right now that we should be watching to see how, how the argument will end. Uh, for example, there is a lawsuit uh, going on um, regarding um, AI generated code based off uh, AI that was trained on GitHub, right? Like all the open source repositories. And now there are like a couple of cases going on where AI generates some bits of code that uh, clearly are inspired by some open source project out there. And then the question is, is it infringing on the copyrights or not? Um, so those kind of uh, legal debates are happening right now and they will be happening for 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 a while, and it comes to like all sorts of generative AI uh, um, copyright issues. Uh, what you're saying about uh, giving artists control over including or removing their art from uh, uh, existing big uh, image models, I think it is absolutely needed. Uh, in fact, like overdue um, feature that has nothing to do with this legal debate. Basically, people should have control. People who create should have control over how their art is used. Um, and uh, the, if now there is this uh, phenomenon of like ginormous models just taking a bunch of pixels uh, handcrafted by humans and then learning how to replicate their style or uh, elements of the imagery and so forth, there must be a way for those people who create, who craft those uh, pieces of art uh, to say no index, you know, how in HTML you can say like, hey, search engine, do not index this page. Yeah. Like there, mu there must be something like that for some convention that would, would be agreed upon across all the makers of uh, generative AI models uh, and some way for artists to indicate that this subset of art is off limits for generative AI models. Yeah. And the, the, functionally, it's, it's easy. You know, you know, in 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 JavaScript, it's there's a function, you know, put image data kind of approach, or where you can define the the, uh, the the image data specifically and rewrite an image, and then you can include the sort of you know the fingerprint directly, Python, whatever. Every code has the ability to do that relatively easily. What's missing yeah. is the common taxonomy that says, do not index, do not do not use this. In the as part of your training library, and yeah. what what we, we what we need is I don't know a group a consortium of folks who have uh you know the like the stable diffusions the mid journeys and so on of the world who are actively making a profit from this to to basically say we agree that that our our, our systems will only index content that is in the public domain or at least has been agreed to by the author and. You know, I, I think it's not it's not a technical issue at this point. It, we, no, that, that's a consensus issue. We need to find we need to agree on on the approach and actually have, well, as you say, a consortium uh, uh, kind of 
getting all the good actors to uh, act according to this plea, whatever you call it, like this manifesto. Um, uh, I, I, I very much agree with you. You see, it all happens super fast. Like this whole generative AI uh, revolution and it happened literally for, for most of us happened uh, over the last uh, six months or so. Yeah. Um, for you know, industry professionals, those people, actually researchers, AI researchers, who were uh, uh, working on those big language models and uh, and generative image AI? Um, it's been it's been years and years of research and years of training those models and so forth. And that was a purely research problem, right? Like some some groups within Google, OpenAI, and so forth uh, were hacking away, like you know, running different experiments, getting like those training data corpuses that they could get their hands on, which is pretty much all the internet and all the imagery. It wasn't at that time a thing that would produce suddenly uh, consumer-grade products that would be monetizable and suddenly would be impacting all the creative industries. And then, boom, like seemingly overnight, it just like went from a research project to something that you know generates imagery for like new NFT collections or for movie posters or my latest track. I, I sometimes record music. So my latest track, uh, uh, album art, is actually generated by OpenAI. Right? Yeah. Like this, this suddenly, like overnight, became like a consumer product that really works. Uh, and I think regulation is just not there uh, to <laughs> to address the issue of like data ownership. Um, I think there's also an interesting, like while we're talking about restricting things from being used as training data. I think I can flip this uh, argument and actually go another way. Imagine what if you as an artist could create your own generative model that is trained on your data and offer it as part of some sort of marketplace, right? And like people who want to generate stuff in your style, they're free to do so. They just like pay you some royalties for using like essentially let's, a trained robot to help. Let's, you know what? I, I, you know, you are in the perfect position to do that. Now, let's look at re the reverse use of your, you know, sort of ML, you know, tech to sort of re-engineer what you're doing. Right now, you're, you're looking for, for folks who are basically counterfeiting NFTs, essentially, by, yeah. by, by doing a kind of, you know, DRM style lookup, like a, like a Shutterstock might, if someone's using, you know, their, the images in, in, inappropriately. But inversely, what, what, you could, what you could do is you could identify the originator of potentially just about any piece of imagery being used or, or, you know, taking a step further, the derivatives of those images, you know, based on yes. certain cri criteria. And then what you, what, what you could do is create a registry or registrar on the, on a blockchain, similar to let's say ENS. And now what, what that, what would happen in that scenario is if anyone opts into this, this registry and, and you are able to determine the originator of, of that, you could literally create a mechanism that essentially uh, provides a kind of royalty structure that's paid into this. And if you can prove somehow that you are the originator of the content, then you would get the reg the, the royalties paid from this registry. <laughs> Funny you should say that. Uh, first of all, brilliantly articulated vision. And second of all, that's literally optics vision. <laughs> um, our motto is less scam, more collabs. Mm -hmm. And that's for that very reason. 
Um, while the first and obvious thing that content identification system like Optic can do is just detect, uh, you know, if there's bits and pieces of content that were simply copied or minimally changed and copied uh, and then stolen, reused. That's the, the most obvious, the most basic use case for such system. The actual sophisticated like end game is detecting derivatives and remixes. Um, and here I have a story uh, from from my YouTube days. I used to be a PM at YouTube or a product manager at YouTube, um, uh, early days of it. Um, and uh, um, an interesting thing about YouTube was that when we just launched, uh, it was this you know video platform, just a bucket of videos in the sky. You upload whatever, uh, and then you have a link that you can send to your friends or embed in your blog. Right? That that's what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, and people started uploading all sorts of random stuff, of course. And soon enough, they started uploading copyrighted materials, music, you know, Saturday Night Live, whatnot. Of course, that uh, you know, YouTube is a safe harbor; it's user-generated content. But of course, a lot of big names out there were super unhappy with their content being used like that. And YouTube did everything we could with our you know operations team and and our community as well to flag and remove those uh, pirated items. But it just it was too much of a content, and so back in like what 2008 ish, I guess uh, Google was facing this problem where unless we find a more scalable way to detect those uh, piracy uh, uh, items, uh, we will be shut down. We'll be just like shut down by legal um, uh, lawsuits from all the copyright owners. And so back then it was a technical marvel, um, a system called Content ID that Google built and, and was used at YouTube, literally a, a computer vision a, a AI that would watch every video uploaded and, and identify what's in it. And if there's like a Lady Gaga song or there's a Star Wars, um, you know, 20 seconds of Star Wars movie or something like this, um, YouTube would notice that and then, uh, you know, it could enforce some sort of policy. And so the first and obvious thing to do back then was like, okay, well, if there's a Star Wars clip being uploaded, you know, do not let let it publish. Okay, that's easy. And the next thing is like, oh, and by the way, if there's a copyrighted music being played in the background, also do not allow this video, also easy. But what happened then was remarkable. And that's the whole point of the story. Mm -hmm. Some of those videos that got uploaded were remixes. You know, people would take, you know, and create and would create their own version of a trailer for uh, Games of Thrones, or uh, they would remix, you know, mash up this song and that song and whatnot. And some of those works, the user-generated works were brilliant and they went viral. Uh, and some of those copyright owners noticed that they actually benefit drastically from this creativity well that YouTube unlocks. Instead of blocking those videos, they, in fact, should be rewarding them because they are driving extra attention. They're driving extra revenue for them and so forth. And YouTube Content ID went from like a piracy fighting enforcement system to value attribution system, as in if I used your, your thing in my video and my video turned out to be really good and I'm now popular and going viral and making money of it, well, some of that value should be attributed back to you because I used your stuff. And so YouTube yep. arranges that, right? So what we can do now with blockchain is essentially the same level of, imagine we had the same level of transparency 
across all of Web3, not just one centralized system like YouTube, but all of it, because all the data is on chain, Optic is processing all of it. And imagine the world in which you as, a, as an artist feel safe to put your stuff out there and in fact, enable anyone to remix it, knowing that if someone does something with your art and starts making profit of it, um, Optic would detect it uh, and, and you would start getting paid royalties automatically, right? This is, this is a long shot vision, but this is what we're driving. And you know, I think that, that's super exciting. It's, it's it's so your your story of of, of YouTube is fascinating. I, I I give you that, but you're missing the lead up to that story. So you know I I, I know I've known Chad for a, a, a long period of time. So for those who don't know, I was involved with the sort of version one of the Napster interface. I was the graphic designer who <laughs> designed designed the interface. So I've got a, a bit of history in that space. And part of the story that I don't think that they tell you about the origin story of of YouTube is their ability to leverage piracy as the sort of growth engine within their early versions of YouTube. And when you look at YouTube circuit like 2004, you know, pre-Google, they they were essentially the place you went to get pirate movies, right? And you, you it was quickly and easily the, the best way to sort of upload a video and share it. But the vast majority of their growth were, were coming from, you know, existing content Right. And like it or not, that that's what grew the first generation of YouTube to a point where, you know, the industry started to take notice. And, yeah. you know, here's the part that I think is interesting. As far as I'm aware, you know, Chad sold to Google, not because he wanted to sell YouTube, because he was essentially forced to because you had Viacom, you had all these content companies saying, you, you're, you, we're not going to let you do this. You're not going to be sort of, you know, we're not going to be Napstered. I think it was the, the, the term that they, right. were thro- they were throwing right. around at the time. And, and, you know, obviously he did well. It sold for like billions of dollars to Google. And, and, but ultimately Google made that into, you know, not just a billion dollars. It's probably the best acquisition they ever made. Right. It's and when you, yes. when you go, when you go on like and do any kind of ads on Google, you know, there's two things driving traffic at this point, mobile and YouTube. Right. That's right. And so, you know, ultimately, if he held on to that, he, he would be in, in a whole other category of rich. Not that he's not rich. You know, he did well regardless. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see that the first versions of things, whether it's music, Napster, whether it was YouTube, and, and now probably, you know, the sort of move towards AI is generally driven by kind of the piracy part of the equation, right? It's always like almost the first thing people do. I'm going to pirate, I'm going to steal, I'm going to borrow without permission. And oh, 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 oh no, it's actually done better than I, I thought. Now we have to legitimize quick, quick. What are we going to do? Right. And we're going through exactly the same thing. We see time and time again, even the first versions of the internet was driven by basically, you know, inappropriate content and, you know, illegal activity. Right. And then, we, and then the rest of the world sort of caught up and the Amazons of the world sprouted out of it. But, you know, it's always seems to be, the the under the dark side of of our culture seems to be the things that we gravitate towards first what what can i say open is better for growth than closed and regulated regulation is good for commoditization and long-term structure uh and openness and lack of regulation is good for growth and any kind of new wave of technology starts with some way too random and way too, in many cases, scary uh, openness, right? And we're seeing right now with, with FTX and all sorts of stuff that's happening in crypto, 
it's like yeah that's the price of uh, lack of regulation and openness and, and and just going really fast and optimizing for growth uh but you're absolutely right like many many new incredible things start because there is no regulation there is no complexity that stands in your way and by the way like back to what we just discussed with generative ai like can you imagine stable diffusion and all these models appearing and, and doing as well as they do if there was already no index tag on every image in the world and uh, no. and people were like cagey about it, right? No, it would kill the innovation. The reason why we even know this kind of uh, massive neural nets are possible is because they just went and scraped all the data. Oh, 100%. And, right, and thanks for doing this. I think that great things will happen in the world because of it. Now that they did it, now we know, okay, well, all right, that's well, not completely fair. You're starting to profit it. Uh, of, of of data that was open for a different reason. So, hey, how about we figure out the legal framework and agree on some rules of the engagement here? But it's great that they had this moment, similar to YouTube with what you call piracy and what I call like being a safe harbor. Yeah. <laughs> early, early days, right? Like, yes, absolutely. Without Saturday Night Live on YouTube, uh, like back in like Chad's days, like I don't think uh, you know, Google would be even interested in this startup. I don't think it would grow to the extent where Google would be interested in buying it. Yeah. Uh, yes, it did grow on, on a bunch of videos that were uploaded by random users that were like straight copies of copyrighted content. But what happened due to this is, you know, those companies eventually, including Viacom, are making so much money of YouTube today like, thank God, everyone is happy. Music industry is very happy that YouTube exists. Uh, you know, uh, Hollywood is very happy that YouTube exists. Um, and ultimately, the world is, is a better place. Um, so I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an important dance. And, you know, now is about the time that we need to start this conversation around authenticity uh, and training data and how do we identify uh, using each other's works uh, and remixing each other's works and, and, and deriving value from this. Now is about the time, and that's what we're building Optic for. We want to be in the center of this debate. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, where can our listeners learn more about you and what you're up to? Uh, well, obviously, optic.xyz is our website, and then optic underscore xyz is our Twitter account. Please come join us. Um, um, also, we have a Discord, and we can chat there. I'm, I'm hanging out there almost every day. Um, and I'm excited to talk to everyone uh, who is interested in AI, Web3, and content. Well, you, 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 found, you found the guy that loves to talk about all those things. So I really appreciate you <laughs> taking, the, taking the time to share your, what you're doing with us today. Um, and for anyone who hasn't uh, checked out the fungibility.co website, you can learn more about our guest today, Andre, and, and what he's working on. You can gain some points by going to the widget, and you can actually own this episode of the podcast as an NFT, probably minted to the Polygon folks. Uh, shout out to Polygon. Thanks for that. And uh, that's it. That's our, that's our podcast today. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Rue.